distinguished guests. Uh, my name is Jackson Malgoto. I'll be the moderator of this session. Uh, first of all, let me say that I'm honored and humbled that um, I was assigned this role and um, for the invitation by the Global Institute for the Prevention of Aggression and, of course, um, in conjunction with the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Center. I will, on this panel, we have a brain trust, as you can see, um, the who's who in um, the field of um, international criminal law generally. I will make a few comments and then I will introduce uh, our speakers today. I was reflecting and I thought that maybe we would, um, I would begin last and then move backwards. Uh, it was mentioned by His Excellency Judge Cole about the logic of history and law is now on our side. Let's go back to the words of uh, Professor Benjamin Ferenz uh, during the swearing-in ceremony for the Chief Prosecutor. He, in part, he stated, almost 200 years ago, the world of Hugo Groschitz was imprisoned for daring to advocate that all human beings had a moral right to live in peace under rules of binding international law. 19th century, John Adams, one of um, the founding fathers of the U.S. said, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. 20th century, Albert Einstein stated, peace cannot be kept by force, it can only be achieved by understanding. 21st century, we find ourselves with his Excellency Judge Cole's words, the logic of history and law is finally on our side. So as you can see, it has been a project long in the making and Kampala crowned those efforts. Without much further ado, I will introduce our speakers. We have Professor William Shabbos, uh, Professor at the National University of Ireland Galway, is the director of the Irish Centre for Human Rights. Um, he's, um, a leading, he's a giant among giants in the field of international criminal law and has served on many international bodies, won numerous awards and distinctions. Uh, that's Professor William Shavis there. John Theron, um, to my left, is a professor at the New England School of Law and is the director of the Law School Center for International Law and Policy. He has also been a legal advisor to numerous non-government organizations, intergovernmental organiza uh, organizations, ETC. He has extensive field experience in conflict and post-conflict environments. To my right, we have Professor Noah Wisbord, uh, uh, professor at the Florida International University College of Law. He, has served, he served as a law clerk to the ICC Chief Prosecutor Luis Morendo Campo. He has extensive experience on international criminal justice and the use of force. And last, and by no means least, even though Leicester is kind of a least country, isn't it? Small. <laughs> we have Stefan uh, Bariga, who's a legal advisor and, uh, to, uh, to the permanent mission of Leicester to the United Nations, and has also served in other capacities, including as legal advisor to the president of um, the Assembly of State Parties to the Rome Statute. Without much further ado, they will speak in that order, and the format will be they will give you their spiel and then um, once they complete um, 
you can then um, take their feet to the fire. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Sure. <laughs> Should I speak with? Uh, I think the. Do, need, do, you, do I need a microphone at the back, Phil? You can hear me. Oh, they, they. Yeah. Well, if you insist. Okay. <laughs> um, it said on the program that this was to be a point counterpoint exchange, and so I, I assumed that meant we were going to just react to each other's comments. I don't have a prepared. Uh, remarks, although I have some reactions to a few of the comments that, that Judge Kyle made. It's nice to be back on the podium with all the crowd that was together in, uh, yeah. in Kampala, all right, a year ago. And uh, we uh, worked very hard there, some harder than others. I think Stefan worked harder than <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Noah and I went rafting down the Nile River. <laughs> And we, we almost, at least some of them thought that this was going to do wipe out about half of the academics who were supportive of the of the Yeah, we were in, I won't make a joke about being in denial. So, let me just comment on two aspects of this. Uh, the first is something that actually um, wasn't really, it, it was touched on but not emphasized in, in Judge Cowell's um, wonderful uh, talk a, a little earlier this afternoon, which he delivered, of course, with his usual humor and charm and, and, uh, and, and with uh, references to important events in, in the past, including the Second World War, which are also um, meaningful, particularly to older people, who, who, uh, some of whom remember it and some who just grew up in its shadow. Uh, like myself, hearing about it um, uh, as a as a child, we used to be told that we had to eat up our the things we didn't like because children in Europe were starving, and of course, children in Europe don't starve much anymore. And I guess young parents today refer to other continents, but but we were still living very much in the shadow, um, not only of the Second World War, but also the the terror that we might live through a third one. Uh, perhaps we feel more confident today that that's not an immediate threat, but I can remember as a, as a boy being taken to the basement of my school in Toronto uh, and being told to face the wall and to cover my head and, because we were afraid that a nuclear war was going to take place. This was the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and we were terrified as, as we were supposed to be. I mean, we, we talk about war, but this was actual, actually terrorism. I think a form of terrorism, but perhaps a different kind than what, than what we always, what we refer to today. Um, the I, I rode back from the Kampala conference on the on the bus to the airport, by chance seated next to the head of the French delegation, and we had an interesting chat about the legal significance and the consequences of the of the decision that had been taken uh, two nights previously. She confided in me that she said, I said it was a very dramatic moment when the, the chair, Christian Benavazer, asked if anybody had any reactions to the proposal and if there were any calls for <coughs> speak. There was a bizarre intervention from the Japanese delegate, but what we were really waiting for was for either Britain or France to raise their, uh, their uh, path, their, their uh, carton, their uh, flags and a call for uh, a vote, which would have sunk, at least temporarily, the whole project, I think, because there probably was not even a quorum in the room. And she said, uh, yeah, we were, we, we were ready to do it, call for a vote, but we weren't going to do it alone. Um, and I assume by that she meant if the British were going to do it with us, then we were prepared to, to sink 
the, the proposal on aggression by basically calling for a vote and that would have, have vetoed it. Those who were at the conference will remember the frequent speeches by the British and the French and a few others who were not states parties but who could take the floor from time to time telling us that what was being proposed was impossible because it was against the charter of the United Nations. And if you look back at the records of the Rome Conference, you can find a few traces of this as well, including a, a speech in the final session, the final plenary session, after the statute was adopted by uh, Frank Berman, who was the head of the, uh, the UK delegation, saying, don't misunderstand this reference to aggression in Article 5 of the statute, but you will not be able to adopt an amendment that will allow for the court to exercise jurisdiction over the crime of aggression without Security Council authorization. And I don't think we should underestimate the, this important development. Of course, we argue uh, that this, there's nothing contrary to the Charter and that the Security Council doesn't have a monopoly, but certainly the permanent members think they do, or, or thought they did. And I think that's what's so, uh, this is a, it's a tectonic shift. It's like when the, when the Japanese tsunami took place, people say Japan moved, what, two meters, something like this. It's, it's hard to see if, you know, we, we, you fly to Japan, you don't notice that it's two meters in another direction. But it creates shockwaves, as did the earthquake in Japan. And I think this one, we haven't yet uh, experienced all of the consequences of this in terms of what it does do in terms of a shift of the, of the world order. The other part of that, which is a bit, it's almost paradoxical, but I, I don't think it really is. Um, Judge Cowell said that actually this is giving more power to the Security Council, uh, the amendments, because it's giving the Security Council the authorization, the authority to refer uh, situations of aggression to the International uh, Criminal Court. Um, yes, it's true, and, and of course, one of the features of the amendments that was somewhat in doubt was to how much it would entrench the fact that only the Security Council can authorize the use of force, outside of the exception of the, uh, of the use of, of force um, in, the, in inherent self-defense, in the inherent right of self-defense. But that's an issue that has been in some has been questioned in international law in recent years, uh, often under the justification of humanitarian intervention, uh, the responsibility to protect the idea has been floated and it's been acted upon, uh, in some cases with a little more credibility than others. I would put the, the justification for military action in Kosovo as being probably more, uh, I don't want to say more legitimate because that's, that's, that's phrasing it too strongly, but certainly it was a more credible justification for the use of force than, for example, the use of force in Iraq, where it was all ex post facto anyway when they, when they found the, 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 the inexistence of weapons of mass destruction and then explained that the use of force was actually justifiable because Saddam Hussein was a bastard and we had to get rid of him. Um, but either of those, I don't think, will pass the, 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 the level now. And, and so what the amendments do, while on the one hand, they, you could say they entrench the monopoly of the Security Council in terms of the authorization of the use of force, they also strengthen the idea that no state can act alone, whatever their justification. 
Um, and that's not only clear from reading the uh, amendments themselves, I think, but it's also clear from the drafting history, in particular the attempts, notably by the United States, to put, to insert uh, into the understandings language that would open the door a little bit for the, um, for, for the possibility of the use of force without the, without the authorization of the Security Council. Some people in the human rights field lament that. Personally, I welcome it because I think that this is a, a further step towards um, the achievement of permanent world peace. Thank you, Professor Shabat. Thank you, Professor Shabat. We now move on to our Professor Winbold. Yeah, or well, maybe uh, I'll yeah. this one so I don't. Oh, you want to, you want to share mine? Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll pass it back. That's remember. all right. You can yeah. hide five quid. Times are tough. Uh, thanks, Jackson, for your nice introduction, and thank you very much, Don, for inviting me to this important event. Um, I'm going to follow up on uh, Bill's point about a tectonic shift, and then I'm going to um, uh, just quickly come back to something that Judge Call said uh, earlier this morning. I know we were going by uh, uh, Chatham House rules where you're not supposed to repeat, but this is general enough uh, that I can build from it. Um, I'm in agreement with Bill that a tectonic shift has taken place and that it may have been very small uh, and it may have been overshadowed by some petty technical arguments over the choice of Article 121.4 or Article 121.5 being the dominant mechanism for the entry into force. But we should not lose track, I think, of the large uh, uh, evolution that took place. There's been three major shifts uh, in international law that came out of Kampala, in my view. The first is a shift from the state to the statesman uh, as the subject of international law, and in particular in the use of force regime. And this is obvious, but when you follow through its implications, it becomes very important. Because really, is it really the state that we want to keep our eye on as we watch the development of international law on the use of force? Or should we also be considering other actors? And the crime of aggression opens up the possibility that other actors, beginning with the statesmen, uh, are now going to be held accountable um, in international law for illegal use of force. This makes sense on technological grounds, on legal grounds, um, and there's now a precedent that started in the 1990s through the ad hoc tribunals that the individual can be held accountable rather than the entire state, collective responsibility. We saw, we saw how well, actually how poorly that worked out in Iraq when the Iraqi people were the people that suffered the most from the sanctions against Saddam Hussein for invading Kuwait. So I applaud the move towards individual responsibility in the use of force regime. And I think this is a move in that direction. Second is the move from politics to law in the use of force regime. It seems that with the end of the Cold War, more and more questions that were considered to be political questions are now becoming uh, uh, legal questions. And as we know, there's a, an overlap but there's something special about the legal process in that it somehow makes politics less vulnerable to corruption, I would say. Because we all have the same starting page. We all begin from the fact that there's an agreed upon definition with standards 
that a court can apply in accordance with rules of evidence and procedure to determine whether a use of force was legitimate and legal or whether it wasn't. And it was much harder uh, uh, before, um, I think it will have been much harder before the definition of the crime of aggression came out to really determine what was a legitimate and an illegitimate use of force. Whereas after Kampala, this has to come into the equation. So that's going to be a pivotal shift as well. And I think it follows from the fact that liberalism won the Cold War. I mean, the counterpoints of communism and fascism that were the counterpoint to liberal international law throughout the last century are now defeated. The liberal political movement has looked now within itself to find the bases for the use of force. And the debates will now take place in a way that's familiar to those people who understand how liberal democracies work to establish which uses of force are allowable and which are not. And I applaud the fact that there is now going to be a principled basis for distinguishing. We're also going to see, I think, an increasing overlap between different legal responses to the use of force. So because there's now an international criminal court, there's national responses to crimes such as genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and maybe even aggression will be tried in national courts. And perhaps there's even going to be local responses, such as in divided communities, where some people were for a particular use of force and some were not, we might imagine restorative processes in communities as well in response to aggression in divided places. We're going to see the international level trying to reach down into all of these places and overlap with other responses. And this advances the goal of legal pluralism in a sense, and it creates an increased challenge for pluralists to try to determine how best to harmonize the various responses to mass violence at an international, a national, uh, and a local level. Um, this morning, Judge Cole said that history repeats itself. Uh, and he was referring to the arguments that were made against the establishment of the Rome Statute in the run-up to 1998, that, oh, technical issues have not been worked out, that we need to sort that out before we make this thing work. <clears throat> Uh, these were raised by the opponents of the Rome Statute. And when the Rome Statute went through, a lot of these arguments that the Rome Statute was completely flawed and was going to be a disaster kind of faded away. And we've seen these same kind of arguments that the crime of aggression is not technically sound enough to be implemented raised in relation to the crime of aggression. <clears throat> Karl Marx would have added to Judge Call's statement uh, that history repeats itself the first time is tragedy, but the second time is farce. And this time we've noticed that the arguments come across as farcical because they're all coming from the states that oppose the crime of aggression because they want to leave the most leeway open for the use of force so that they can advance their own political and military interests. So this time those arguments are smacking a little bit uh, as farcical, and I think that people are better able to sort out which are real and which are pretextual. I'm going to end there, but I hope that in this discussion we can abandon, maybe not totally abandon, but we can get past the basic technical arguments and start looking to the future about how the ICC may in fact 
address some of these larger questions that are going to come before it, such as interpreting uh, the language of the definition when it comes to humanitarian intervention, self-defense, the character of an armed attack, whether that will include cyber attacks or not. So I'm putting those things on the table and passing on the mic to Stefan Bariga. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Weisbold. Uh Now we'll um, go to uh, Mr. Stefan Beriga, and um, I'm sure he'll give us um, the insider's view uh, in as far as that um, we can do that. The inside of one cell may well be the outside of another cell, as my mom is wont to say. <laughs> thank you very much, and also thank you, Doctor, for inviting me to this uh, tremendous conference. And thank you, Judge Paul, also for your for your uh, inspiring uh, lecture just before. I, uh, for those who don't know me, I uh, am a legal advisor to the president of the Assembly of States Parties, and I have been advising him in the process of leading the negotiations on the crime of aggression from 2000, 2003 until the last minutes of Kampala. So to that extent, I guess uh, I'm an insider, but I may be blinded also sometimes by, by that particular perspective. Is that right? Um, so I'd just uh, briefly like to uh, come to the title of this panel, which is What Happened in Kampala, and uh, maybe just address a few points here, picking up from what the previous speakers um, have said. Uh, one thing that I find uh, quite striking, Judge Cowell said it, at the moment there is not much high-level attention to the issue of the crime of aggression. And that was actually so already for the several years before Kampala. I always found it striking that, uh, sure, the government sent their legal advisors from the ministries or for, from the missions in New York uh, to the meetings on the crime of aggression, but there was not very much high-level attention. And I always attributed that not to a lack of interest in the topic as such, but to a lack of trust that we may achieve anything at all. I think people very much thought, that's a pretty hopeless cause, let them go to Princeton and discuss the stuff. And they did not quite realize that we were making progress step by step in very small increments, meeting after meeting. Uh, we did slice the questions down into small pieces and piece by piece made small progress, which then in February 2009 led to the first breakthrough. We had sliced the issue so much and made so much progress that already more than a year before the review conference, a year before the actual deadline, we had agreed on, the, on one of the most difficult things, namely the definition of the crime of aggression. And you know, in February 2009, if you had asked me if that's the only thing that we agree on in Kampala, just the definition, but not how to make it operational, I would have said, I take it, tremendous, huge success. And so, already in February 2009, we were at the stage where we had an agreement on a definition which was quite conservative and which is a real compromise, as Judge Cowell has stressed. It has this threshold clause, really only the clearest cases, the most outrageous cases of the illegal use of force are something for the court to take up. In this respect, I, I maybe disagree a bit with what Noah said. I think that actually the amendments on the crime of aggression do not much, they do not add much to a discussion of what's an illegal force, use of force or not, because it only describes what are the clearest and most outrageous cases of uh, the use of force. Nothing in there is revolutionary. Of course, what is a, something that is by its character 
gravity and scale a manifest violation of the Charter, that that's illegal, I don't think there's any discussion on that. The difficult discussions uh, start when we do not have all of these criteria in place for humanitarian intervention and, and, and more smaller scale interventions, um, etc. So it's quite a conservative uh, definition, which many argue is befitting the fact that we are talking about a criminal statute and uh, that we're talking about criminal sanctions. It does not mean that if these criteria are not in place, a use of force may not be illegal under the law of state responsibility. But for the purpose of criminal prosecution, we have to pick the gravest actions. Uh, so with this uh, pretty good preparation from the special working group, we went into Kampala with basically two big open questions on which there was a lot of uh, disagreement. Uh, one question which had for a long time been termed as a question of the entry into force procedures as a somewhat technical question was actually, and after the special working group more clearly articulated as the question, do you need the consent of the state concerned for the court to take up a case of aggression? Or even more concretely, do you need the prior consent of the alleged aggressor state for the court to take up a case or not? So state consent was the one big issue. And uh, on this issue, we even went so far as to have a a roll call, an informal roll call during a meeting in March 2010. We called on every single state party and asked, what's your position on this issue? And the outcome was pretty much 50-50. You had about half the states parties saying, we want a consent-based regime. And the other half of states parties were saying, we want something that is a real protective regime. If the victim state has ratified the aggression amendments, uh, there is no need that we also require the ratification by the aggressive state. They wanted something that is more protective. So 50-50 on, on this first question. The second big question was the role of the Security Council. And I should add here that on this question, uh, the special working group had already clarified many related things because the role of the Security Council is actually a pretty, uh, pretty large topic. Uh, for example, the role of the Security Council uh, encompasses is the Security Council the only way how a case can reach the court? In other ways, is only the Security Council referral the trigger for the crime of aggression? Or do we also allow the other two triggers, uh, the proprio motu investigation and the state referral? And a special working group had already agreed that all three triggers applies, apply. So there was already a compromise on this issue. Uh, there was already clarity that no matter what the role of the Security Council will be in the end, when the Security Council makes a finding of an act of aggression, this will not be binding on the court. We'd have, we had very long and uh, tricky discussions on this, and uh, the due process argument uh, was irresistible in the end. We had to uh, agree and we put it in writing that whatever the Security Council determines, it cannot bind the court, otherwise the due process uh, for the accused would be compromised. So the only question left before Kampala was whether the Security Council should in all cases act as a jurisdictional filter. And that presupposes that actually the case has already started at the ICC, that the prosecutor has already begun a preliminary investigation, 
either on the basis of his own initiative, basis of a state referral or security council referral, has started to collect evidence and when the prosecutor then thinks there is a reasonable basis to proceed on the crime of aggression, does he then have to ask for permission by the security council? And on this issue, uh, we also, the roll call also uh, dealt with this question. And here the positions were much more lopsided. Uh, you had obviously the permanent members of the Security Council that said there should be an exclusive Security Council filter. There were a few more countries that took that position, but the vast majority of uh, states' parties uh, took the view that the Security Council should not, at that stage of the procedure, be the exclusive jurisdictional filter. Uh, so going into Kampala, we had these two big questions, and if, uh, if you ask what happened in Kampala, I think the core events, the most important events that happened in Kampala, that I think was quite unexpected, was that on the first question, on the question of state consent, where you had really uh, a polarization 50-50 among the state's parties, a compromise was achieved on this issue. Uh, it was based on uh, initiatives by several countries, but basically the whole room came together on the issue of state consent, which left then only the other question open, where there was an overwhelming majority of countries in favor of the non-exclusive Security Council filter and a small minority of countries in favor of the other <laughs> approach. Uh, the end game uh, then in Kampala tried to deal with this division by bringing in the issue of delayed activation uh, as a counterbalance uh, to the inevitable choice that we were facing. There was this overwhelming majority for a non-exclusive filter. So we added additional, uh, if you will, things into the mix that uh, those countries favoring the exclusive Security Council filter might like, like this breathing space, the delay of activation. And uh, that led to a frantic uh, final negotiation uh, that then uh, led um, to the compromise. Uh, but again, my overall point is because there was an unexpected compromise on the issue of consent, this left only one narrow specific question open and there the overwhelming majority of countries uh, got their way. Thanks. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Stefan, uh, uh, for uh, that insight. Now, we, I'll um, just take uh, one, two seconds to say uh, we are uh, running slightly behind time, but um, with your kind permission, I will just pinch some time from the tea break so that um, we can have um, about 15 minutes, um, so till 10 past 3 for questions and discussions. On that note, I wish to open this to the floor, so uh, you just um, you quickly your name, affiliation, and then uh, the person you're addressing the question to.